is about insight. I first wanted to say uh, what a wonderful group you are to be with. Uh, it's a pleasure to sit with you. And for the second day, uh, there's a great feeling of you settling in already here uh, with the turkey vultures and turkeys and <laughs> California poppies. It's a wonderful place uh, to be in the back of this valley. I've only been here once before. Uh, and you can feel there's a kind of um, settling in of this place compared to last year when it was so brand new. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. When we're born into the human world, we're born into a world of change. And it's a vast mixture of joy and sorrow and pain and pleasure. The spiritual journey is one of coming to understand change. And it's out of the understanding of pain, pleasure, joy, and sorrow uh, that we come to not be imprisoned uh, by our own suffering. We can get imprisoned by our own denial or anger or fear towards the pain in this world. Uh, and it's out of insight or wisdom that we become less imprisoned by our own desire or addiction or craving uh, for the pleasure in this world. Uh, it's through the power of mindfulness. Is it still? Is it all right? It's through the power of mindfulness that we can change how we relate to the pleasure and pain in our lives. So we move from the more unskillful response uh, to change in this world of aversion or attachment or delusion to a skillful response of wise attention, which leads to unconditional peace or unconditional happiness. It's a happiness and peace that isn't dependent on conditions. I first see the process of insight meditation as a process of becoming less indifferent to our own suffering and to the suffering of others. So we usually are motivated to practice out of compassion. The goal is to understand how and then why we suffer. And it's through the exploration of our own body and mind that we come to understand how and why we suffer. So it's not through any book or tape um, or words that we uh, come to a deep wisdom, but it's out of our investigation of our own experience. The Buddha called this ehipasiko, come and see for yourself. Don't take my word for it. You know, examine your own experience. And it's out of that examination that this liberation happens and a deep peace happens. In this practice, we apply systematic mindfulness. And the application of systematic mindfulness results in vipassana. It results in insight. Insight can happen into impermanence. There's insight into suffering or the unreliability of experience. There can be insight into anatta, 
meaning that there's no solid, separate self behind this process that we call me, or mine, or I. So mindfulness is a way of um, being aware of our direct experience with a non-judgmental attention. It's not a thought about our experience. It's a kind of pre-verbal awareness. So for example, say you're down by the dining hall and you can hear as you walk into the dining hall laughter coming from the yurt where the staff is eating. And maybe uh, you're able to note hearing, hearing. And you're just able to be with that direct vibration of hearing itself. And maybe you're going along walking into the dining hall and maybe there's another gale of laughter. And uh, you're not able to notice that direct vibration of hearing. But you think, oh, uh, laughter. And then if you're not mindful of thinking, at that point you can just be able to be aware of thinking. But then maybe the next thought is, gee, I remember this party that I had you know, at my house two years ago. So you know how that can go. We can be mindful of remembering, but you know how easily we proliferate into maybe a 10-minute or 15-minute uh, proliferation where we're lost in thinking. And how did it start? You know, what's, what, what happens? How easily we lose the thread of the process of mindfulness. Uh, so some of this process is just learning the difference between what direct experience is, which is not a thought about experience, it's that dir- direct vibration of hearing itself, and then noticing what it's like to be lost or identified with a thought. Mindfulness is the intention to understand our experience rather than to judge our experience. So it's not only uh, not a thought about our experience, uh, but it includes a deep intention to understand. So this practice of mindfulness results in vipassana. It results in seeing clearly. Through the practice of mindfulness, we can see clearly that everything is conditioned that anything that appears in this world will arise and eventually pass away. We can see clearly that because of this change, it's called anicca, because of impermanence, experience itself is unreliable or unsatisfactory. Dukkha is sometimes translated as suffering, but it's important to see that in this case the translation means this kind of intense insecurity that we don't ever know what's going to happen because things are changing. Insight into anatta uh, sometimes is harder for us to understand. Uh, and it's, it's when we look closely at our experience, we can see that experience itself is insubstantial. It's, it's so ephemeral. If you look very carefully at a thought, you know, they're so fast and they're so fleeting, and yet we give them so much power. And so insight into anatta can come from seeing how insubstantial a thought is, 
And then, of course, there's the, <laughs> you know, meaning of that, that who I think I am, uh, based on experience, that I am not so substantial. Who I think I am, who I think you are, isn't as solid as we think. So there's a way in which we come to understand that there's no solid separate self in this universe, no matter how hard we try to find it. And I encourage you to try to find it. So the idea about um, this practice is that we see that we can't find a lasting, secure happiness through experience itself. It doesn't deny the existence of pleasure at all, or the happiness that comes from pleasure. But it's, it, there's this understanding that there's a deeper kind of peace and happiness. We often get glimpses of freedom through this process of mindfulness. In any moment of mindfulness, there is no uh, greed, hatred, or delusion happening and one will feel that the awareness is free. And this, this glimpse of understanding or liberation is so powerful, it keeps us going through the times when we're lost and caught and identified in experience. When I taught my first three-month retreat, which was about, I think, 18 years ago, I had a student who had voluminous amounts of restlessness and aversion. It was just um, (coughs) very extreme. And so the only way he could get through a day would be to walk 30 miles a day. That's a lot of miles. (laughs) <laughs> no, it wasn't exactly lifting, moving <laughs> you know, He was gone from breakfast to tea. You know, that was his uh, walking meditation. Uh, and there was excruciating physical and mental pain that was happening for him. He's done, probably every couple of years, a six-week retreat or a three-month retreat. And after that first three-month retreat, Um, the next first day of practice it went from him having to walk 30 miles a day to being able to stay on the ground you know there was such a shift in him that just from one three month retreat he was able to go from that kind of restlessness and aversion to being able to stay on the ground Um, a lot of aversion came up aversion to the staff, to the teachers, to himself. There was just a tremendous aversion. And I wondered if he was going to make it through that course, but he was able to manage to stay on the ground. He suffered a lot, but he stayed with it. The next long retreat he did, he was able to really penetrate his own mind and body. He was able to go deep in with a lot of continuity. And he started to understand that trying to change, you know, people and himself and the yogis on the retreat and the conditions on the retreat um, was a lot of suffering. And he started to be able to change his relationship to what was happening. Uh, And it was phenomenal to watch him go from that first retreat to this deep, unconditional 
acceptance of how things are. And there were times when he'd come into a, an interview and he would just describe uh, his days as a valley of contentment. And then in recent years, when he comes to retreats, he still has to work hard, uh, but there's a kind of uh, humility, just a deep humility. And when he comes into interviews, it's usually very quiet, and there's just these little tears that come down of gratitude for the peace. It's wonderful to see that kind of change, uh, but it takes patience. It takes time. Sometimes it takes going through (laughs) some uh, time of not even being able to do the practice like it looks, like it should. And that's okay. It's like we do what we have to do. A lot of how we suffer is in our relationship to change. Recently I was um, at a friend's place, it was last fall, uh, on Martha's Vineyard, which is an island off of Massachusetts, and we were on the far end where there are these beautiful cliffs of red clay, and it was one of those beautiful days where the, in Massachusetts where the ocean is green and clear. Uh, and it was pretty warm for fall, and this friend and I were walking along the beach, and we came to this place where the clay, big chunks of clay had fallen out of the cliff and were um, in the ocean. And you could see this red and gray uh, marble clay uh, washing into the ocean. And my friend looked at me, and she said, oh, isn't this so sad? Isn't it sad that the clay is washing away? And at the time, um, I was thinking about my sister who has cancer, and she's in her third year of um, battling, but losing slowly this battle with ovarian cancer. Uh, And I was watching the clay, and in that moment, I just saw my friend, myself, the clay, the sun, the ocean, everything was washing away. And there was a, this, just this beauty or poignancy in that fleetingness of life, uh, which is always here with us, moment by moment. The practice is meant to help us, this practice of mindfulness, uh, see on a very deep level this birth and death of moments and the fleetingness of existence. This is a quotation from the Dalai Lama. He said that awareness of death is the very bedrock of the path. Awareness of death is the very bedrock of the path. Until you have developed this awareness, all other practices are obstructed. This is so important to see that awareness of the fleetingness of life is really um, how we come to understand deeply what's happening in life, what is really happening versus what we want to be happening. Uh, This awareness of the fleetingness of life helps us to face our reaction to change. And if we can understand our reactions to change, we will understand how we suffer and how to be free.
awareness of death or the fleetingness of life helps wake us up. This year uh, was quite a busy year for me. When I um, came back from a trip to Burma, and I think it was February, yeah, I came back to a lot of uh, responsibilities. And one night um, I had just this very long list of telephone calls to make, and I had much more to do than I had time for. And uh, my husband and a young man that lives with us uh, went out to surf late in the afternoon, and I thought, oh good, I have all the space, you know, I can get all this stuff done. And I was torn or <laughs> conflicted between getting a snack uh, and going to make the phone calls. Uh, so I decided to just rush into the kitchen and open the cabinet and get these rice cakes out that um, I would just stuff into my mouth while I was making the phone calls. Uh, so I, I grabbed this package of rice cakes out that um, had never been opened. And I knew I had bought them about four months ago. I travel a lot, so I, I know what I buy, but they often don't get eaten right away. So I took the bag out of the cabinet, went into the place where the phone was, opened them up, and I was actually dialing the number. And I took the rice cake. Oh, I forgot one important thing. <laughs> I'm a highly allergic person. Uh, but I've never been allergic to food. I'm, I'm a, very allergic uh, to bee stings. Uh, so I never worry about food. This is very important <laughs> part of the story. So here I am. I take this rice cake. Now, how uh, innocent can a rice cake be? I mean, most people don't even want to eat a rice cake, right? Because there's nothing there. <laughs> you know, they're really <laughs> nothing. How could anybody have trouble with a rice cake, right? So I <laughs> put the rice cake in my mouth, and I'm dialing, uh, and I'm swallowing, and immediately I have this incredible allergic reaction. My throat starts itching, and it's, my throat started closing. But I didn't want it to be happening. So I decided it wasn't happening. <laughs> so I, I make a phone call, and my throat's closing, and I do one. Ah, oh, good, I got one done. I took another bite. <laughs> I mean, can you believe it? I take another bite, swallow it. It's, you know, much worse, you know. And, uh, and I really felt like <laughs> I was um, about to die. You know, my, my heart was going uh, very fast. And still, I didn't want to accept what it, that it was happening. And plus, I was really hungry. And I wanted to take another <laughs> bite. <laughs> and so here I am, all this conflict, wanting to make the, another phone call, wanting another bite, uh, and basically about to die. And not <laughs> to face it. And so luckily, I glanced over at this bookcase, and I had bought a book for uh, my husband Steve about two or three years ago when his father was dying, and the name of the book is Dying at Home. <laughs> Luckily, I saw, I just happened to glance at it, and I went, oh, <laughs> I better accept that this is happening. Uh, and I just was so amazed that I didn't want to accept that kind of change. You know, and I, you know, I, I decided to lay down and see if it would help, but it didn't. And I, you know, took a pill, went to the doctor, got a shot. But you know, this is uh, an extreme example of how we are. 
you know, if you just look at what happened for you today, how much of the time when there was sleepiness or restlessness or aversion or attachment or something you ate, or how much of the time were you able to accept the change of what was happening? Or how much we compare just the amount of expectation that we come into a retreat with and then the reality of the second day. It's just like the rice cake. <laughs> you know, and what does it take to finally say, oh, I can let go of this expectation and just be with how it is. Or I can let go of this desire and just be with how it is. This is mindfulness. It's being the process of change of how life really is versus how we want it to be. The Buddha taught four foundations of mindfulness. Today we were emphasizing in the instructions mindfulness of the body. The Buddha said about mindfulness of the body, one thing, O monks, if developed and frequently practiced, leads to a deep stirring of the mind, to great benefit, to great security from toil, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to the attainment of vision and knowledge, to a happy abiding in this very life, to the realization of the fruit of knowledge and deliverance, what is that one thing? It is mindful contemplation of the body. The Buddha taught that we can understand the whole universe through being mindful of the body. And this includes being mindful of the, the posture, walking, sitting, lying, standing, mindfulness of breath, body sensations, Mindfulness of all physical movements, of eating, walking, brushing hair. It's pretty inclusive of all physicality. And this includes, the more you understand your own physical body, it means we understand a frog or a mosquito. You know, it's just earth, air, fire, and water is what makes up the physical body. The idea of being mindful of body is very similar to being mindful of hearing. So when we talk about being able to be with the direct vibration of hearing itself, with the body it's being able to be, say, with the direct experience of the movement of the breath, or the direct experience of a sensation in the knee. It's the difference between being lost or caught in the concept or thought about the experience and that immediate direct experience in that moment. So it's said that when we notice physical uh, materiality, that we will come to understand earth, air, fire, and water. So for example, when you're sitting on your cushion on the buttocks for 15, 20, 30 minutes, at some point we'll at least get in touch with earth element. You know, there's hardness. Uh, and just that, if you can be aware of the hardness there, that's starting to get in touch with earth element. Earth element is solidity. And there's a range from softness, very soft, um, light earth element, to very hard. Air element is that range of dynamic movement from very light tingling or pressure or vibration uh, to tightness or contraction, to pulling, throbbing, stabbing, 
Uh, that's the range of um, air element that we can experience directly. Fire element is the range. I find it being here at Spirit Rock, <laughs> the range from like warm uh, to to hot, uh, to cool to cold, just you know from 11 o'clock in the morning to one o'clock, amazing. You know, just to to feel like when I walk down from here for, to lunch. Um, just compared to when I might walk down to the dining room at 11. That range of temperature is extraordinary. Water element um, means cohesiveness. It coheres all the other elements together. We can understand impermanence, dukkha or the unreliability of experience, anatta, through just the experience of one breath, if we experience it directly. Change, you know, it's pretty clear. If we're noticing the movement of the breath and there's understanding, certainly we'll start to understand change. There's a birth and death of a breath. The next breath is new. It's alive. You know, it's wildly ungraspable. It's slippery. And then because of that change, we don't know what's going to happen. We really don't know if there's going to be another breath. And as the out-breath disappears, you know, if we're really aware of that, it's amazing to stay with that process of a breath. And then that there's no solid separate self happening. There's just air element coming and going. We can almost see that as that we all share air element to be alive. In any moment of mindfulness, we can deeply understand that what we call my body is a transforming process of earth, air, fire, and water. And if we can come to understand that about body, we can start to accept more that the the thought process is coming and going by itself and the emotions are coming and going by itself. So we start to have a spaciousness around that lack of solidity, uh, and we can start uh, reacting less to change. Each moment of consciousness, there's a pleasant or unpleasant or neutral mental feeling that comes with each moment of consciousness. And because of that, we're, we're living in this stream of change pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, changing. And we never know if the next moment will be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And so because we're not mindful in any given moment, when it's something unpleasant occurs, we tend to push it away. Or we withdraw in fear from the unpleasantness. Or if something pleasant is happening and it passes, or even if it hasn't passed yet, we tend to grab on. So whether we're pushing away or withdrawing or grabbing on, that moment of contraction is a moment when we're not in touch with the truth of life. Because the truth of life is the flow of change. And when we contract, when we react, that's where we suffer. Uh, So this practice is one of, of understanding this level of how we suffer. And the Buddha taught that we can be free of that chain. It's like we're chained um, like uh, with a hook 
we're hooked on to pleasure pain and the, the change. Uh, and if we can step back enough with a mindfulness practice to start to accept change and be able to be aware of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral with mindfulness, there's freedom. We're no longer tied or chained to experience itself. Earth, air, fire, and water are just names. Please keep in mind, they're just words and they're just names. They're not referring to literal ingredients, but they're characteristics that are present to various degrees in physical objects. They're determining the appearance of these objects to our senses. So how do we experience body free from concepts? We just investigate, we try to be interested in the direct experience versus thinking we know what a breath is through the thought process or thinking we know what a California poppy is through the thought process or thinking we know what a turkey vulture is. It's like whenever we really think we know intellectually, we've missed it, we miss the experience. So please remember that the four great elements are characteristics or mere qualities. They're not any durable essence or identity. Mindfulness is non-conceptual. It's experiential. And, And try to just keep going deeper into that. One can experience these elements as less and less solid as well. The Buddha said that We can regard the body in this way. This body is not mine. This is not what I am. This is not myself. And as we come to understand that about ourselves, we can understand that about another human being or any any being that we share the planet with. How do we relate to change on a retreat over the course of a day? And if you just took the last hour, but just look at the day, there can be that range from loving kindness to rage <laughs> to uh, wanting, loneliness, to restlessness, to sleepiness, to doubt, to self-hatred attack, to uh, equanimity. Um, And over time, as you go through that kind of change of experience over and over, uh, literally, we start to get less and less identified with experience itself. And that spaciousness, again, around experience uh, brings more and more peace and happiness. I did a self-retreat this past um, November for about three weeks. And this might seem like a a kind of superficial uh, story, Uh, but (laughs) I had a very strong reaction to this uh, change in my body during the retreat. So when I went to bed um, that night, before this appearance in the mirror in the morning, I had looked in the mirror 
and I didn't have any brown spots on my face. <laughs> and when I woke up and I looked in the mirror, I had these new brown spots. And, uh, you know, they're just aging spots. But then I looked down at my hands, <laughs> and it was like, overnight, I had hundreds of them. You know, and <laughs> it was just, it was incredible. Uh, and I've noticed that at 47, you know, I, a lot of times I do spontaneous talks now because I can't see my talks. It's, you know, my eyes are going, my skin is going, I can't hear so good. The memory is really going. Uh, <laughs> and I know it's just the beginning. <laughs> and I've decided not to count the brown spots. <laughs> but it was a certain moment, you know, there were some moments at the retreat where it was just horrifying. <laughs> That's dukkha. <laughs> Aging is dukkha. <coughs> the Buddha said that the days and nights are flying past, life dwindles hurriedly away, the life of mortals vanishes like water in a tiny stream. If you're wondering why it's hard to be mindful with continuity, it's because actually Life is moving so fast. So look carefully. Look at how fast thought is going. Look at how fast sound is moving, how fast physical sensations are moving. It's hard to be quiet enough to see it clearly. It's moving very fast. That's why we emphasize slowing down. It's why we emphasize, you know, looking like zombies, you know, and not looking at each other and looking down. Uh, and secluding ourselves, um, not reading, not writing. Uh, I must say that I have glanced at the toilet paper wrappers uh, this, this retreat, and I noticed that they say preference. Have you noticed? <laughs> and I thought, you know, that saying the great way is easy for those who have no preferences. <laughs> I think it's great that the toilet paper here says preference. Uh, <laughs> But remember yesterday I was talking about how by secluding ourselves so much we start reading things like the toilet paper or the bulletin board. Uh, and that, that happens because you are actually starting to get quiet. And you'll start to notice that wanting anything to pull ourselves out of um, just being in the moment. You know, we, we, are, we get so caught in trying to entertain ourselves. We're so used to stimulation. Uh, and the seclusion is so important because it's what allows us to see more clearly this deeper level of change and this deeper level of uh, unpleasant, pleasant, neutral uh, feeling. It's how we break the spell. Aversion and attachment or the wanting mind and the not wanting mind are the unskillful response to change in this world. And so aversion and attachment are an attempt at happiness. Try to have compassion for it because it's just an attempt at security. We're born into this insecure world and it takes a lot of compassion and patience to do this practice where we slowly develop the understanding. If you put in your time, it's just going to sink in. 
And I really see a retreat, like, you know, I get up, you punch in the clock, you know, mm-hmm. punch in, go to bed, punch out, and then maybe, you know, the next day, you know, you put in your time. And if you have that kind of steady patience, uh, something happens. I've just seen it in myself and others over and over again. And you can't make insight happen. You can't make understanding happen. Uh, but it's like, it's almost like when we're at that place where uh, we think nothing is happening and we have to go through times of real boredom and dryness that the unexpected presence of mindfulness returns. Mindfulness is a skillful response to change in this world. This practice is called insight meditation, but it's also called the path of purification. In one moment of mindfulness, there's a great purity of awareness happening. And if there's some continuity, maybe it's five moments or maybe longer, then that's five moments of purity, or ten minutes of purity. And in those moments, there is no aversion, or attachment, or delusion happening. And that's very pure. And the attention will be like smooth water. Uh, There's no resistance to what's happening whatsoever. The attention is transparent, and we'll feel at home because the awareness, that pure awareness, is home. It's what we thirst for. That's why we go on the spiritual journey. The little detail here is that we often judge this kind of practice when that's happening as good practice. Uh, And then we get into trouble because um, this process is a process of purification. So those times of purity are literally like taking a dirty cloth and putting it in pure water and rubbing it. And you know when you clean something, the dirt comes out. So when there's that purity of attention, at some point, the dirt's going to come out. The greed, hatred, and delusion will appear. And we all have our unique stories, so how the content of what appears might be different. But just when there's that purity of attention and we're flowing along, Usually, as the energy goes down, there's another layer of greed, hatred, and delusion that we're meant to face. If we're growing in practice, it's going to come up. Maybe it's another (laughs) uh, moment of resistance to fear that comes up. Or maybe there's the wanting line comes up, or loneliness. Whatever it is, when that starts to come up, we often go, this is bad practice. You know, I, I didn't come here to be sleepy. I worked with this fear, you know, for five years. This shouldn't be coming up. You know, I'm not here to work with loneliness. You know, we have this response like, (laughs) I didn't come here for this. (laughs) And the very thing that we're struggling with, um, you know, is what's going to liberate us. And it's very hard for us to see this clearly, but I think that it's so important to understand that this process is one of purity and purification. Purity and purification. Purity and purification. And until you're fully enlightened, we might as well get used to it. 
<laughs> it's what's happening. Uh, so try to be careful of that judgment when it's going well. You know, I am a good yogi. You know, this is it. This is great. And then when it's really difficult and we're slogging and suffering away, you know, this is horrible. You know, I didn't come here for this. You know, I can't do this. And on and on and on, down into despair. We can go from being um, feeling totally free, not, not identified with experience, not lost in thinking, to being really lost in a solid sense of separate self within seconds. Uh, we can get lost in obsessive thinking and planning, karmic knots in the body and mind. We can get lost in opinions and judgments or starting to try to figure you know, the universe out. Be careful of getting lost in self-hatred attacks when we get lost. It's, it's just <laughs> part of the process. And if you can bring some patience and as well as a kind of gentle, a gentle determination to just keep going lightly, uh, compassion and the unexpected presence of mindfulness will come back. And the more we fight and struggle, with the appearance of greed, hatred, and delusion, the more energy it takes to fight it, and the longer the ups and downs, you know, the, that we go down and down and down, because we're just not seeing clearly that we're struggling and fighting. The presence of expectation or anticipation or wanting doesn't help us get out of our suffering and the presence of resistance and aversion, uh, fear, doesn't help us get us out of our suffering. It's only when mindfulness appears, you know, that we're free in that moment, when we're not identified with experience. And those moments are when we're free. So try to remember uh, to bring as much patience uh, to this process as you can. Uh, think about the person that used to have to walk 30 miles a day to be at a retreat. You know, if that's not happening for you, it's a good day. <laughs> In some ways, um, we can't help ourselves, but we're quite impatient. <laughs> you know, it's very hard for us to have a long-term view uh, and I think that culturally, maybe because we're becoming more technological, you know, we're so used to a kind of instant this, you know, like the computer, you know, it deletes instantly. I think of those old typewriters where you had to really work at erasing a mistake, you know, and nowadays we just go, boop, <laughs> you know, what? I mean, there's a, there's a great comfort, our comfortability in that and an ease, but it also doesn't exactly teach us patience, you know, or the microwave or whatever, but we're living in a, in a time where uh, patience isn't easy to come by, and we can learn patience by just going through a night, you know, if we, and appreciate just the shelter that we have, the food, the shelter, uh, 
just to be here, to have the luxury of being on a retreat is so rare in this human world. And then to have these kind of conditions is so extraordinary. Uh, we can sometimes move from that kind of um, fixation on what, what we're trying to get on the retreat or what isn't going well for us and try to remember at times to be grateful even on the second day of a retreat, it's possible uh, to feel that at times. Ultimately, letting go happens by itself. Letting things be happens by itself. Going deeper happens by itself. Uh, So all you have to do is just keep going with a kind of gentle determination. I'd like to end with a, a quotation by Anne Morrow Lindbergh from a, a book called Gift from the Sea. The sea does not reward those who are too anxious, too greedy, or too impatient. To dig for treasures shows not only impatience and greed, but lack of faith. Patience, patience, patience is what the sea teaches. Patience and faith. One should lie empty, open, choiceless as a beach, waiting for a gift from the sea. This is our practice, to be be soft and ready. It's like a soft readiness, you know, and, and the insight will come. It doesn't happen by giving up, and it doesn't happen by trying too hard. It happens by that just soft, gentle uh, determination, and freedom will come. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.